From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this Monday edition of Washington Watch. I hope you had a nice, long Thanksgiving weekend. I did, and I enjoyed every morsel of it. But now it's back to work. Coming up on this edition of Washington Watch, China has responded to the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Acts signed into law by President Trump last week by suspending U.S. military visits to Hong Kong and warning of further actions. Asian expert Gordon Chang is here with the latest. Also on Friday, the embattled prime minister of Iraq, Adele Abdul Mahadi, announced he would submit his resignation to the Iraqi parliament. The resignation comes as nearly 400 people have died in clashes with security forces protesting the government over the last two months. What is the way forward for Iraq? That's what we'll talk about with Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida, a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He joins us later. And Chick Filet remained in the news over the holiday weekend as a pre-Thanksgiving investigative article revealed that the privately owned Christian fast food chain had given money to the anti-Christian Southern Poverty Law Center, among other liberal organizations. Ryan Bomberger, who made the revelation, is here. And finally, how important is the Supreme Court to the left? In two words, it's everything. With a majority of the high court's justices now tethered to the Constitution, the left is deathly afraid that the court may overturn the left's holy grail, Roe versus Wade. The court was a major issue in the 2016 election. How big of an issue will it be in the 2020 election? Terry Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of CNSNews.com, is here with the answer. The website, TonyPerkins.com, if you're on Twitter, it's at T. Perkins. All right, before we uh, jump into our first topic, a quick reminder as uh, you often hear on this program, the left's on a mission to silence and marginalize anyone and everyone who has a biblically grounded view on public policy. Well, I'm here to tell you we cannot and will not back down. And that's why I'm encouraging you to partner with FRC so that Washington Watch can continue and we can utilize every available tool to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And thanks to... A $100,000 Giving Tuesday Challenge match. If you give a gift today, it'll be doubled. You'll double your impact. We've got folks standing by to take your phone calls, 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008 to get in on Giving Tuesday, which is tomorrow, but we're getting a jump on it. Or you can visit TonyPerkins.com to donate right now. That's TonyPerkins.com. All right, last week... China promised it would issue firm countermeasures after President Trump signed into law the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, something we've talked about frequently on the program. Now, this supports the anti-government protesters in Hong Kong, democracy, freedom of speech. And in that measure, it threatens China with potential sanctions. Well, CNBC reports that there are fears that the fight over Hong Kong could impact efforts by Beijing and Washington to reach preliminary deal, trade deal, and could uh, really escalate this prolonged trade war between the two countries. Uh, joining me now with his analysis is Gordon Chang, columnist, television pundit, and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Tony. All right, how big of a deal is it with uh, China saying no longer can the U.S. Uh, Navy, uh, U.S. aircraft uh, visit the island of Hong Kong? 
I think that this is not China sanctioning the United States. This is China sanctioning China. Because essentially, when an aircraft, uh, an aircraft strike carrier group goes to Hong Kong, that's $5 million or so for the Hong Kong economy in the space of three or four days. So this is something that will hurt Beijing more than it hurts the United States. And it also shows, Tony, that the Chinese just don't have a way of getting at the United States. They may huff and puff, but they know that they really cannot sanction the U.S. in any meaningful way. I mean, this does not seem to be that serious of a quote-unquote sanction because it's been um, actually more than six months since the last uh, U.S. naval vessel stopped in Hong Kong. Yes, and, and we know, you know, in the past when China has thrown a fit over one thing or another, they will stop port calls in Hong Kong. And the way for the United States to deal with this is to say to Beijing, fine, if you don't want us, we'll just go to Taiwan. Yeah, I think that this is an important show of support for freedom and democracy in Asia, and it'll show Beijing that it is just doesn't have the tools in which to deal with the United States or to deal with the whole notion of freedom. Now, they, in this, they also listed sanctions for some U.S. non-governmental organizations that have been tracking the abuses in both Hong Kong and China, Human Rights Watch and Freedom House among them. Um, what do we know about those sanctions? I mean, it's already difficult to operate in China as it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any real practical effect to those either. Um, so, you know, Beijing is just trying to show the world and maybe to its own people that uh, it's powerful. Um, but this doesn't have a practical effect. Now, Gordon, some thought, because the president over the last couple of weeks has been talking about we're very close to a deal with uh, China on the trade impasse, and some were speculating that he might not sign this Hong Kong uh, democracy measure because it could derail the trade talks. Uh, th- that shows that the president is, uh, is playing hardball when it comes to human rights, religious freedom, freedom of speech, democracy, um, and I, I, think it sh- I think it sends a very strong message to China myself. Yeah, this was a great day for the United States last Wednesday when President Trump signed those two bills because Beijing had publicly issued a demand that he veto them. And since Beijing was just asking for obedience from the White House, and President Trump said, no, he's, he's going to stand up for American values, and, and that is important for us. So what is the uh, what's the way forward here? I mean, we're it, it does appear that we're at an impasse. Uh, China, as I see it, they kind of have a tiger by the tail. The they have got they're just in a pickle when it comes to a resolution in in Hong Kong, and I'm I'm not quite sure how this gets resolved. This is going to be indefinite conflict in Hong Kong um, because whatever Beijing has been doing has been fueling the opposition. In the last five months of continuous protest, whenever it appeared that there was protest fatigue or that the protesters were losing the support of the mass of Hong Kong people, Beijing would do something that would enrage the people there, and the protests would then start afresh. So essentially, Beijing has no idea how to tamp down the protests, and it also doesn't have very much of a military solution either for various reasons, and I think the Chinese know that. It, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this leads the uh, the trade talks. Uh, again, as I said earlier, it sounded like they were very close to uh, inking a deal. I, I would think that uh, the Chinese are going to have to save face here and, and back away from those trade talks. What do you think? 
Well, that's a possibility. But also people have been saying that uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, has been deliberately stalling on trade because he knows that people will advise President Trump um, not to go after China on Hong Kong, human rights, democracy, whatever, um, because he knows that uh, that, you know, President Trump might listen to actually that. Um, but fortunately, he didn't. No. And I think that he actually, I think President Trump actually got a trade deal closer because he's given the Chinese really some incentive now to deal in good faith with uh, us. I, I don't like a trade deal, but if you like a trade deal, um, signing those bills, I think, was a way forward for the president. I mean, I, I do think, Gordon, it shows that he is not going to be pushed around. He's not going to compromise what uh, we have uh, articulated as top priority uh, tra- top priorities in our foreign policy. And I, I just it, it, to me, it's another example of this president showing that he's not going to be bullied. Absolutely. You know, we've had so many presidents in the past, both Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, who were bullied by Beijing. Um, President Trump is the first one since Eisenhower who said, no, I'm just not putting up with that. So does this have implications elsewhere in our foreign policy? I mean, we've got some other challenges in in the Asia region. Uh, does this, and, and, and that's not the only place. I mean, it's, it's a tough neighborhood out there globally. Does this, uh, how he handles this, does this uh, communicate to other leaders? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, in Asia, everything is connected. And all of our disagreements with China, and then the disagreements are growing, have an effect on each other. Um, So, you know, people in the region are looking to see how the White House deals with the Chinese because the general posture throughout the region has always been to defer to Beijing, no matter how unreasonable it has been. And we've had many American presidents who've done that. Um, So now I think that American foreign policy actually does have a way forward in these other areas because we're showing strength and people in the region like strength. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Gordon Chang, my guest. Uh, you can reach him on Twitter at Gordon Chang, uh, C-H-A-N-G. Uh, Gordon, I would imagine, and I have not, uh, I've, I've been out since uh, this was signed, uh, this measure was signed last Wednesday, but I would imagine that this has uh, breathed new life into the democracy effort there in, uh, in, in Hong Kong, and knowing that the United States, the Congress, the president is standing with them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, after President Trump signed those bills, within hours, we had tens of thousands, and in one day, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets flying the American flag, singing our anthem, and holding pictures aloft of President Trump. Um, And that's a real show of gratitude to the United States. And it shows that we have a common interest with the people in Hong Kong, because the same power that is encroaching on their autonomy is attacking our society across the board. That's a really good point. And I think people, especially some of our listeners, I want to make sure they don't miss that from a standpoint of why we care about foreign policy. Because today, with everything being so interconnected, our foreign policy has dramatic impact upon our domestic policy and vice versa. So all of these things, whether it's happening you know, across the ocean, the Pacific, uh, or the Atlantic, it has implications for what happens right here within the uh, the, the continental 48 United States. Yeah, and what we see is that China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and others sometimes act in concert. And so when they see that the U.S. has been ineffective, um, they go after us. 
And that occurred, for instance, in 2013 when President Obama drew a red line in Syria and did not enforce it. We had real problems in Asia, especially with our allies, South Korea and Japan. Um, when U.S. policy has been resolute, um, things have gotten better and the, the bad guys have fallen in line. So, as you say, everything is connected. And although we don't want to think about many of these things, they do affect our country in a very meaningful way. Well, I am uh, I'm very glad that the president did sign this uh, into law. I think it sends uh, a number of uh, messages in terms of our priorities, and, and I'm hopeful uh, that, as you say, that this could actually lead to uh, the neg- a resolution on the trade impasse with uh, China by showing strength and not weakness. Gordon, as always, great to have you on the program. Uh, thanks so much for your uh, insights. Thank you, Tony. All right, uh, Gordon Chang. Again, you can reach him uh, at Gordon Chang on uh, on Twitter or go to TonyPerkins.com. You can follow the links over. Um, you know, there were a lot of people thinking the president wouldn't sign it. Uh, because, you know, the economy, trade, those are top priorities for him. But look, consistently you see from this administration a priority put on human rights, religious freedom, democracy, freedom of speech, all of those things uh, that matter so much that that uh, America stands for. So uh, very, very encouraged by that. All right, when we come back, Iraq, the prime minister there resigning on Friday. Submitting his resignation, rather, to the Iraqi parliament. What's going to be the way forward for that embattled uh, country? Well, we're going to talk with uh, Ted Yoho, member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, next after the break. Don't go away. Abortion is one of the most combative and sensitive moral and political questions in America today, even among Christians. There has been a renewed effort in theological liberal Christian circles to argue that the Bible does not oppose abortion. In light of these arguments, it is crucial for Christians to know what the Bible actually says about abortion. Does the Bible teach that life begins at conception or birth? Is abortion murder? In FRC's new publication titled, Biblical Principles for Pro-Life Engagement, Personhood, Scripture, and Church History, author David Clausen addresses these questions with relevant passages in the Bible that inform how a Christian should think about abortion, the question of personhood, and a survey of how prominent church leaders have interpreted these passages throughout history. Learn more by visiting frc.org slash unborn. That's frc.org slash unborn. Meadow Pollock was a high school senior who was tragically gunned down during the Parkland school shooting in Florida. In an emotional and gripping FRC Speaker Series event, her father, Andrew Pollock, and education expert Max Eden discussed the tragic massacre and the politically correct policies that allowed the Parkland shooting to happen. The Southern Poverty Law Center and the Obama administration promoted a false narrative that teachers and principals were racist and couldn't be trusted to enforce rules with consequences. Instead, they argued for healing circles and restorative justice. These policies enabled a psychopathic criminal to maintain a clean background and purchase a firearm used to murder 17 people at the high school. The Obama administration forced these leniency policies into hundreds of schools, serving millions of students across America. To listen to this event and to learn more, visit frc.org speakers. That's frc.org speakers. Religious liberty is one of the most important yet... 
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. As I mentioned, Iraqi's prime minister announced uh, Friday that he would submit his resignation to parliament. That came a day after more than 40 people were killed by security forces in protest and following calls by Iraq's uh, top Shiite cleric for lawmakers to withdraw support from the prime minister. Nearly 400 people have been killed in uh, the bloody crackdown on protests since October 1st, most of them young demonstrators who have been shot or killed by exploding tear gas canisters fired by security forces. The move by Adel Abdul Mahadi, which came uh, 13 months after he took office, uh, triggered celebrations uh, by anti-government protesters who have been camped out for nearly two months in uh, Baghdad Square. Uh, The issue now becomes who will replace him. Uh, the parliament, he was actually a consensus candidate because the, the factions within the parliament could not reach an agreement 13 months ago. What happens now? Well, joining me with analysis is Congressman Ted Yoho. He represents the 3rd District of Florida and serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, we, we saw this uh, kind of, by the way, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and, uh, and thanks for uh, for joining us here on this Monday afternoon, jumping right back into uh, the business of, uh, of government. But th- we saw this coming as his uh, leadership became challenged and embattled by protesters. What do you see as the way forward in Iraq with such a divided government? Oh, it is a divided government. And, you know, with uh, Iran playing a, a hand in that, you know, the last thing they want is a, a stable democracy that will you know, form a government and then form a a stable country. And so when you have a a divided government like that, you know, the call by the protesters are for a completely uh, gutted government and reelected. Whether or not that will happen, that will have to see. If we keep the foreign powers and influences out of there and let the Iraqi people determine what's best for them, fulfill the needs of the Sunnis, the Shia, and the Kurds, uh, is, is what we all hope. Um, comes to fruition here, uh, because that needs to be a government that's representative of the three different fractions in there. And uh, the, the way it was going uh, obviously didn't work. And, you know, you saw the protests and the results of that. And that's something that hopefully with um, um, uh, the prime minister, Mahadi, stepping down, it can start anew. Well, this is not the only place we've seen uh, this type of protest. Uh-huh. Lebanon, the same place where uh, leadership had right. to step down and resign. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned Iran, that that is a large part of the focus of the protesters. As you said, they want a clean slate. They want that influence of Iran out of there. But I'm not quite sure that Parliament has the same message. You're right. Um, you know, with Iran... They want, they want to make sure that they're controlling that government. And keep in mind what their, their whole goal is in Iran is to reform the Persian Empire. Uh, and it's just the people in that area, they don't want that. And it's very clear in their protests and the way they've taken a strong stand. And this all comes down to the basic innate uh, qualities that we're born with is freedom and liberty and mm-hmm. That can't be that can't be held back, and China's learning that. Uh, we're seeing that in uh, Bolivia. We're seeing it around the world. That freedom is something that people are demanding, 
in the 21st century, and our goal is to help facilitate that without interfering. Congressman uh, Yoho, the, the, um, the, the issue here, the, the route that the prime minister has taken is kind of a slow route of resignation. He submits it to the parliament. The parliament has to, uh, to accept it. He could stay in position until a, uh, another prime minister is selected. What do you think is the best way forward, given the fact that America has invested so much in Iraq? Oh, man. What's the way yeah. forward? The way forward is in this interim government, help them resolve uh, the differences as quickly as we can. And, again, put the focus on the the factions that are in there, the Kurds, the Sunni, and the Shia. And that's a tough group right there. And, you know, there's going to be the tribalism that um, you've got to make amends for or um, you've got to make – concessions for the different tribal factions in there and the disagreements that are just naturally inherent. And um, by having somebody like Iran meddle in that, uh, it's just going to be unclear on how a new government will form. Uh, And then a constellation of political actors from a majority of the government and and an opposition. And if we can find that and find out leaders in that, um, then I think we can move forward. But it's going to be a rocky road here. And if we, our goal is to help, our goal, saying the United States, is to help economic development uh, through different vehicles that we have. We passed the Build Act last year that we can go in and help um, in infrastructure. And we've met with a lot of the, uh, the players on the ground, and they want to focus on agriculture. And if we can help that and bring in an economy, then I think we can get a, a government that comes out of this. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of private investors ready to invest money in Iraq uh, yeah. and in various businesses. The problem has been the security situation with a lot of these uh, militias, many influenced by uh, some, I should say, influenced by Iran, preventing the those that were displaced from returning back to their their community. So it's a it's it's a complex problem, uh, but oh, it's I really hope complex. that. I would hope that America can provide some leadership, given all that we've invested in that country so far. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I've sat with, you know, the people that are our head people on the ground over there from the State Department, and they're trying to make a coalition government. But when you have Shias who believe it that Shia is the dominant, you have the Sunnis who believe they're the dominant, you have the Kurds, when you have these three factions that don't want to play nice with each other to try to get a coalition government out of that. And, uh, you know, I know it's been proposed to have three, have it split up into three countries, Kurds, Shia, and Sunnis. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but that was something that people said, you know, if we could agree on land uh, demarcations, that may be the best way. But well, until then, you're going yeah. to have to get a, a, a just a block of people that can agree on what's best for Iraq. You're right. Uh, we got to leave it there, Congressman. I would I would say that's a conversation worth more uh, discussion because it may be dividing the country might be geographically might be the best way forward. All right, folks, don't go away. When we come back, Ryan Bomberger of the Reliance Foundation joins us. Don't go away.
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us on this uh, Monday afternoon. Coming up tomorrow, Giving Tuesday. But we've got folks standing by to take your call today. If you'd like to uh, take advantage of a $100,000 Giving Tuesday challenge match that uh, a generous donor has made, uh, you can double your impact today. Call 800-225-4008. Folks are standing by to take your call. That's 800-225-4008, or you can go to TonyPerkins.com. All right, um, right as we were going into Thanksgiving weekend, Thanksgiving, that long weekend, uh, there was more news about Chick-fil-A. Uh, you know, we had heard the announcements. They had stopped funding the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Salvation Army, because they are accused of being anti-LGBT. Well, Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation, I said Reliance on the way out of the previous uh, segment, it's the Radiance Foundation, discovered that Chick-fil-A had uh, actually donated directly to, among other leftist groups, the anti-Christian group, the Southern Poverty Law Center. He published a column at townhall.com entitled Cowardice and Capitulation, the Shocking Things Chick-fil-A Funds. You can find that at TonyPerkins.com. Joining me now is Ryan Bomberger. Ryan, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, it's great to be with you, Tony. Well, well first off, uh, let me just ask you, what prompted you to start looking through the tax records of uh, Chick-fil-A? Not exactly the, the most exciting thing to do, but I was so tired of hearing the public rhetoric. I wanted to find out, okay, they're saying one thing. Are there, is their funding actually reinforcing what they're saying? And so that led me to their 990s and this, the discovery of some really shocking things, the groups that they're funding, the pro-abortion, pro-LGBT groups that uh, Chick-fil-A wouldn't publicly profess that they're funding, but they, they've been doing it for years. All right, name, name some of those groups and what those groups are involved in, because you know some people you know, don't want to believe this is happening. Uh, because, you know, so many people rallied to the defense and support of Chick-fil-A a number of years ago, seven years ago, when they came under attack for their biblical values. And, and what you're saying here, not just you, but what uh, the record is showing is that they have intentionally been moving in a different direction. Absolutely. Over the past few years, they've been moving leftward. I mean, they funded YWCA, which is radically pro-abortion, and that completely or continually, I should say, partners with Planned Parenthood, the new leadership council, which is this progressive hub of millennial, as they describe themselves, of millennial thought leadership. You've got the, the Pace Center for Girls, which is a pro-abortion organization out of Florida. They've, they've gotten tens of thousands of dollars. Usher's New Look. Uh, you've got Chris 180, a group that is, I guess they describe themselves as a behavioral health and child welfare service agency that's radically pro-LGBT. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are just a handful of the ones that, that we've discovered. I mean, you have to dig deep to find out, okay, who are these organizations and what do they stand for? But it's really shocking, especially when you contrast that with what we're hearing publicly from Chick-fil-A. Well, uh, most prominent among these leftist groups, which doesn't take a lot of digging to find out what they stand for, is the Southern Poverty Law Center, this anti-Christian organization that attacks almost any Christian organization that is involved in public policy. And in fact, they, as you write in the article, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center is one that put the hate map up uh, uh, that lists a number of organizations, including the Family Research Council, which was used by the gunman who came into our building with Chick-fil-A sandwiches on the heels of the Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. And I guess it's it, it's even baffling to us that uh, Chick-fil-A would fund that organization. Even a dime. 
even even a dime to an organization like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which suffers a severe poverty of moral conscience. I mean, it's a group that started back in, what, 1971 to, to fight racism and discrimination, gender discrimination, and it's ballooned into this scam that, like you said, it just brands groups that disagrees with ideologically as hate groups. I mean, absurdly, and yet they'll fund them, and they'll fund these other groups that are very politically left, and that pretty much have the same goals as the SPLC when you when you look from a political perspective. And now, you, you said this was shocking. I mean, were you really shocked? I mean, did this, what, did, what were your thoughts when you started looking through this and you began to find all of these organizations, including the Southern Poverty Law Center listed? Well, I will say that I love Chick-fil-A. I love a lot of things about Chick-fil-A. And so this this was really disheartening to find this out, especially as someone who stood in long lines back during his Chick-fil-A appreciation days because I believe the corporation was actually, you know, actually speaking the truth about what it believed. And so to see this funding over the course of years, it, it's really it's, – it's shocking. It's, it's disheartening, and you feel like – is there a corporation that actually professes Christianity, professes to abide by biblical principles that actually puts those into practice? And what we find is when we pull back that curtain, when you look at this tax returns, it's undeniable the direction that Chick-fil-A has, has deliberately chosen to go in. And I mean, it's sad it, for a lot of families who have supported them over the years. It is. I mean, uh, you know, you prefer an organ- a business that just is in the business of doing whatever it is they do, making widgets. Let them make widgets, stay out of the... Uh, you know, the cultural issues, but if they choose to get in in them, uh, you know, the the hypocrisy is, I think, and the betrayal is what many people see uh, from what they now understand Chick-fil-A has been doing. Yeah, that's that's the part that people are going to have to deal with. We, we want people to just be aware, to understand as Christians where your money is going and what is it funding. Is it funding organizations that are hostile to us? Then we have to do a double take and, and really consider what it is that we are funding through yeah. our, our dollars every day. Absolutely. Ryan, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Very insightful article. Thanks so much for your work. Absolutely. All right, folks, you can find it at TonyPerkins.com. Coming up next, the New York Times has written a major article entitled How a Divided Left is Losing the Battle on Abortion. Terry Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of CNSNews.com, is here next. News. We can get it from many sources, but what can you trust these days? Where can you get news that doesn't make you as suspicious as you are informed? If you're looking for something better, for honest coverage of the latest news, one trusted news source I look to is the Washington Times. When preparing for the radio program and selecting guests to join me on the show, I will often read the Washington Times and have their reporters join me here on the program because I trust how they cover the news. Join me and more than 7 million readers who turn to the Washington Times every month to get real, trusted news. For a limited time, only listeners of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins will receive a special annual rate of $69.95 for the first year. Subscribe to the Washington Times and get this special offer by using my name and visiting WashingtonTimes.com slash Tony Perkins. That's WashingtonTimes.com slash Tony Perkins. 
medical abortion laws in New York, Illinois, and Vermont are challenging the sanctity of life. These laws have lifted the few existing restrictions on abortion in the name of family planning and mental health of pregnant mothers. Americans need to take a stand and defend the rights of the unborn. Family Research Council is sending Congress 90,000 baby hats as a reminder that babies should be welcomed with love and warmth, not potential danger. Supporters have already funded over 45,000 hats. We are over halfway there. Join Americans across the nation and donate $9 to send a powerful reminder that young lives need to be cherished. When you take action, we'll send you an end birthday abortion certificate that will remind you to pray for born alive babies who are facing the danger of being killed outside the womb. Visit endbirthdayabortion.com for more information. That's endbirthdayabortion.com. Hello, this is Tony Perkins, President of the Family Research Council here in Washington. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. All right, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the program, uh, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, and we've got a $100,000 Giving Tuesday challenge match that you can actually match today. Uh, it'll double the impact of your gift. We've got folks standing by to take your phone call. That's how FRC and Washington Watch exist. It's uh, not from government money. We receive no government dollars at all. Can't say the same for the groups on the left that advocate for policies on the other side of the equation. But for us, we're supported only by individuals like you across America who care about this country, about our freedom, about our faith, about our families. And so you can join us and partner with us. Call 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008. Folks are standing by right now, part of our team, to take your call. Or you can go to TonyPerkins.com and make the donation online. All right. Um, as I mentioned before the break, the New York Times has written a, uh, a lengthy article entitled How a Divided Left is Losing the Battle on Abortion. Now, this takes into account many things. The 2016 election was a major uh, in terms of the, the court was a major issue in the 2016 election for conservatives, the Supreme Court. Well, apparently the left, asleep, realized that we are now, we have what looks like a majority of the justices on the United States Supreme Court tethered to the Constitution, meaning they're not uh, freelancing out there, you know, coming up with all kinds of things in the shadows of the Constitution. And that means that with a abortion case in the pipeline, right now, in the pipeline, actually coming from Louisiana, that the court could revisit the landmark abortion cases of Roe v. Wade and uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which could ultimately lead to this issue going back to the states. And they're t- terrified, absolutely terrified, that they will lose their ability to impose abortion on the nation through the courts. Joining me now to uh, talk more about this is Terry Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of CNSNews.com. Terry, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so what, what's happening here on the left? Are they waking up to realize that uh, the holy grail of the left, Roe v. Wade, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey, could be slipping from their hands? I think they, they do realize that. And I think, uh, 
you know, if you looked at the way they behaved during the Kavanaugh confirmation, they did believe that was at stake. They've never wanted to fight this in a democratic way. They always knew they had to do it in the courts. Back in 1973, they had a 7-2 to court with them. Now they're not so sure. And they know if they have to fight it out in, in democratically fought elections in the states, that the pro-life argument is more persuasive. People know that when you do an abortion, you're killing an unborn child, and that candidates that run to protect life are going to have the advantage over candidates that run saying they want it to be legal to kill unborn babies. So I do think this is a very pivotal movement in the fight over abortion in our country. I want to play a, a clip from the last uh, Democratic presidential debate that was that took place in Atlanta on the discussion of abortion. Now, this is, uh, uh, Greg, I want to play uh, a, a clip one. This is uh, Rachel Maddow uh, asking a question of uh, Senator Klobuchar. Welcome back to the MSNBC Washington Post Democratic Candidates Debate. Many states, including right here where we are tonight in Georgia, have passed laws that severely limit or outright ban abortion. Right now, Roe v. Wade protects a woman's right to abortion nationwide. But if Roe gets overturned and abortion access disappears in some states, would you intervene as president to try to bring that access back, Senator Klobuchar? Well, of course. Uh, we should codify Roe v. Wade into law. That is what we should do. And this president indicated early on what he was going to do, and he's done it. Uh, Terry, when they talk about codifying into law Roe v. Wade. They're acknowledging that this is all imposed on us by the court, never done democratically, as you pointed out. But what makes them think they can do it now as they've not been able to do it over the last 45 years? In fact, the ground is shifting in America toward a more pro-life position. Without question, and just, just to back that up, Tony, today I just did a story, just published it about an hour ago, based on the Centers for Disease Control Abortion Surveillance Report, which they released just last week during Thanksgiving, believe it or not. But what that report showed is that over the last 10 years on record, in the 47 states that actually report their abortions to the CDC, California, Maryland, and New Hampshire do not, but the 47 states that do, abortion has dropped 24%. And it's not just that the number of abortions have dropped, the rate of abortions, that is the, the number of abortions per 1,000 women who are 15 to 44 years old, that has gone down. And the ratio of abortions, the number of abortions uh, compared to live births, has gone down. So even without legislation actually getting through a Supreme Court test and working to prohibit abortion in those states where they've been passing that kind of legislation, even without that, Abortion has been diminishing in the United States because Americans are winning. Pro-lifers are winning the argument mm -hmm. in the culture. Right. Amy Klobuchar is not. It's, it's interesting because even the Guttmacher Institute uh, about two months ago in their report acknowledged that uh, the abortion rate is declining. In fact, it's, uh, I think, down 50 percent from its high in the 1980s, according to them. But they were quick to say it's not because of the pro-life laws passed in the states nor the work of the care pregnancy centers, the pro-life movement. Uh, I take issue with both. I think you're seeing the policies are reflecting the culture at the state level where more and more states, in fact, almost uh, 40 percent of the pro-life laws have been passed in the last 10 years. 
um, that going all the way back to uh, 1973, 40% of all of those laws have been passed just in the last 10 years. So clearly the trends are not in the direction of the uh, the pro-abortion community. And I think the division in their ranks is beginning to show that they're frantic. They, they are, Tony. You know, another telltale sign was what happened in the 2016 presidential elections. I remember watching the returns that night, and when Donald Trump won Pennsylvania, I knew he was going to win. And it followed that he was going to win Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And why is that? Why did Trump win Pennsylvania? In the last 40 years in this country, the swing vote in the northern states has, have been known as Reagan Democrats since Ronald Reagan won in 1980. And those are people who are socially conservative. A lot of them are Catholic, and they're pro-life. They also like where Donald Trump was on immigration. They like his foreign policy. They like his views on trade. But they were pro-life. If Donald Trump had not been pro-life, he wouldn't have won Pennsylvania. He wouldn't have won Michigan. He wouldn't have won Wisconsin. Now, a smart Democratic strategist looking at that would know that if the Democrats nominate a knee-jerk, ideological, 100% pro-abortion candidate to run against Trump in 2020, they're going to have a hard time winning that swing vote who are with Trump on abortion, immigration, trade, and foreign policy. And it's key, in my view, to the Republicans in a national election that they have a pro-life candidate precisely because of that vote. So when you look at the national political situation where you have states like Georgia and Alabama passing laws that almost or virtually outlaw abortion, where the Republicans can win, and it's basically people think, okay, the Republicans are going to win Georgia and Alabama, but you have a candidate that can also win Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. Democrats don't have a chance. Politically, the pro-abortion position is a disaster for the Democrats. It's also, of course, a moral disaster for our country, but for them it's a political disaster. Well, from the New York Times article where they interviewed, I think, nearly 50 uh, pro-abortion supporters, uh, th- it, it appeared to me very clear that they're certainly not inclined to advance a moderate candidate or a candidate that has a moderate position on abortion. They appear to be doubling down, uh, which, as you pointed out, I, I think is is really the the uh, the best thing that could happen, quite frankly, to the Republicans <laughs> if they will continue uh, to do what this president has done, and that is to, to not hold to a you know, a, a, a pro-life position in lip service or in, in word only, but this administration has amassed quite a record on advancing a pro-life position. Without question. And, and if the pro-life issue becomes an active fight because things that are going on in Congress, things that are going on in the Supreme Court going into the fall of 2020, that works to the advantage of Trump and it works to the advantage of the Republicans in holding the Senate and winning back more seats in the House. For the Democrats to go far left on abortion, which clearly was where they're going, is a disaster for them. Remember Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a very smart guy. He was a horrible, he was a horrible president. He was a very smart guy, and he had very smart political candidates, political strategists, and Jim Carville, Paul Begala, for example. They understood that the swing vote did not want a pro-abortion candidate, which right. is why Clinton came out and said he wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. But that was just hollow rhetoric, but it showed that Clinton understood that in positioning himself, if he went as an all-out pro-abortion guy, it was a good 
it hurt the ability to win those states he needed to win. Well, with Justice Ginsburg in and out of the hospital, I mean, it's it, it's hard for me to imagine the Supreme Court not being a major issue in the 2020 election. No, it will be. And, and, you know, first you have, you mentioned the Louisiana case. I think that was shrewdly brought up by the conservatives on the court because it's a low hurdle. Uh, it'll be a first decision for Gorsuch and Kavanaugh related to abortion. The issue is going to be, can a state say that a doctor performing abortions must have admitting privileges in a nearby hospital? That's not a hard thing for five justices to decide on. But it's a hard thing for the liberals on the court to be against. So there's a good chance that gets decided in the right way. But as you say, with Justice Ginsburg's health, if you have a vacancy in the court uh, in the next year, that's really going to focus his fight. Because then there may be, or not only five, there's potentially six votes on the court that could go against Roe. And it's not theoretical. It's very practical. And that's what happened in the 2016 election where you had a vacancy on the court waiting to be filled. It was not a theoretical issue, which it is in so many elections. It was a very practical one. And I think we're we're moving toward that same uh, that same position again. We are. And of course, President Trump put out his list. Before the election, he, t- he took a very strong pro-life position, which was quite different from the position he used to have. I mean, once upon a time, right. President right. Trump was in favor of legalized partial birth abortion. But he ran in 2016 as a as a committed pro-life or 100 percent pro-life. And he has followed through on that. And he's done good things in the pro-life arena. And I think if it becomes a major issue because of what goes down in the Supreme Court and because of what's happening on in the state level, it's good for him and it's good for the pro-life movement because we need a pro-life president and we need a pro-life Congress to keep moving forward on this, which is clearly one of the most important, if not the most important issue in this country. Absolutely. And we're so close, so close if we do not lose heart. Terry Jeffrey, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. As always, great to have you on the program. Thank you, Tony. All right, Terry Jeffrey with CNSNews.com. To find out more, go to the website TonyPerkins.com or CNSNews.com. Uh, great resource for uh, for information. By the way, talking about that Louisiana case, just to kind of how this unfolds, I actually authored uh, 20 years ago, the original Clinic Regulation Act, bringing it into the ambulatory surgical uh, provision in the uh, the legislature, and it passed overwhelmingly. I think it was like maybe five votes opposed to it because it was so reasonable. It struck down in the courts, came back the next year, passed it, and then this is a uh, second iteration of the law that would require these uh, admitting privileges within a certain distance from the clinic. All about protecting the mothers and protecting life. And and look where we're moving. The pro-life movement is moving forward. We uh, we must not become discouraged or lose heart. And, folks, I just want to tell you, the record is so clear from this administration when you look at what they're doing on the life issue. Stay focused on the policies. All right. on my way out here today, I, I want to take what we called in uh, legislative parlance a, a personal privilege for just a moment as I close the program by uh, paying tribute to a dear friend of mine who went to be with the Lord yesterday. For our listeners in uh, Oklahoma, especially 
high school football fans, you will probably recognize the name of uh, Alan Trimble. In his over two decades as head coach of the Jinx Trojan, Allen won more championships than any head football coach in the history of Oklahoma high school football. But it was not just what he did on the gridiron that made him a standout. It was how he poured into the lives of the young men that he coached and mentored. Allen was one of my closest friends in high school. We played football alongside each other on the defensive line. Clearly his football career was much more notable than mine. Uh, he was in my wedding, and we've stayed in contact over the years. And nearly three years ago, he was diagnosed with ALS, but he faced it with his characteristic courage, faith, and optimism that defined almost every aspect of his life. Uh, while our efforts to obtain experimental treatment under the relatively new federal right to try law, those efforts were unsuccessful, Allen remained thankful, and he remained positive to the very end. The source of his gratitude and optimism was not rooted in his circumstances, but in his abiding faith and commitment to Christ. You see, when you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and walked with him nearly your entire life as Alan did, there is truly, truly peace that passes all understanding. All those who knew him will certainly miss him. Clearly, the world is a better place because he was here. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is powered by the Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.